0: Isaiah 45 marked a sea change in our ancestors' understanding of who God was and how God worked, that God was their God, but not only their God, that God worked through them, but not only through them. God chose Cyrus to remind our forebears that the God they belonged to did not belong to them.
1: That's the Reverend Barbara Brown Taylor, and today she shares a powerful message of faith called, Belonging to the God Who Doesn't Belong to Us. I'm Peter Wallace. It's Day One.
0: Welcome to Day One, the weekly program that brings you outstanding preachers from America's historic Protestant churches, sharing insight and inspiration from God's Word for your life. Now to introduce this week's preacher, here's our host Peter Wallace.
1: Thank you, Sherry. Today on day one we're delighted to welcome the Reverend Dr. Barbara Brown Taylor, an acclaimed author and speaker and an Episcopal priest. For many years she taught religion at Piedmont College in Demarest, Georgia, and earlier served as a priest in several churches in the Diocese of Atlanta. She's earned degrees from Amory University and Yale Divinity School and is the best-selling author of 14 books, including An Altar in the World, Learning to Walk in the Dark, and Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. Her latest book is Always a Guest, a collection of her wonderful sermons, including a couple she preached on day one. Barbara, welcome back to day one. Thank you, Peter. You are now in what you call the Sabbath season of your life. And as I face retirement myself, that sounds very appealing to me. So how hard is it to resist the culture's expectation that everyone who can still breathe must be working on a project, as you said?
0: Yeah, I was going to say, you're quoting me, aren't you there? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I think the thing I get asked most often is, what's your next book? And Mm -hmm. I've gotten to the point where I just want to keep a fly swatter close by (laughs) so that I can swat that away. Um, But I get it. I try to take it as a compliment. But Sabbath has been ignored a long time Mm -hmm. in our culture, Mm -hmm. and I've personally ignored it a long time. And even when I practiced it um, during a busy work life, it was hard to do. It is hard to stop and to, um, what, yield my doing to my being Mm -hmm. with absolutely no effort to earn my right to breathe.
1: So, for those of us who find ourselves in a Sabbath season of life or who are anticipating it, what wisdom would you share with us about how to lean into this way of life?
0: I think I must have unknown ancestors who came over on the Mayflower because I think we have to sort of exorcise the puritanical uh-huh. side of ourselves that says, and perhaps Christians in particular, people of faith in particular, that duty, duty, duty yes. never ends. One of my best friends said, I'd rather burn out than rust out. Mm. And I thought, are those the only two choices? <laughs> so uh, the way I've begun to think of it is I'm privileging beauty as highly as duty. And it seems mm. to me sometimes older people, marginalized people, sidelined people, um, have been slowed down enough by circumstances beyond their control, also by their choice, to see what is lovely that they Mm. were moving too fast to
1: see before. Mm. You taught for many years at Piedmont College, now University in North Georgia. Is there anything you miss about interacting with students?
0: Oh, I miss the students. I don't miss a single syllabus <laughs> or paper, but I just heard from one the other day, one of the first students I had, he really taught me how to teach huh. uh, and would correct me in class a lot. And and now he's an editor of graphic novels. Uh, hear, hearing from former students who were just popping with intelligence and curiosity and sass then, and to have any Any way of um, hearing from them now and hearing that those were valuable years to them Mm. also. I love college students because unlike graduate students, they don't know what they're not supposed to say yet. So they're (laughs) spontaneous and silly in ways graduate students don't have any knack for. Mm.
1: The last time you were on day one, it was just weeks before the pandemic locked down our communities and churches, and that 's now well more than three years ago. How did you get through that season? I assume you just spent time on the farm you live on doing some bird watching among other things
0: see doesn 't that sound like oh, useless yes. just oh, you think it sounds it's wonderful wonderful Well, my great wealth during that time was land. you know I yes. had friends who were in apartments in with children underfoot trying to homeschool and work from home and learn how to use, it was really difficult. At my house, on the other hand, there were a bunch of animals, and as you said, a bunch of birds, um, and wide open space. So I never got the claustrophobia some other people mm-hmm. did, and I'm introverted by nature. Mm-hmm. So I think the great lesson of that time for me is that I am never alone when I am surrounded by life, mm. And there is so much life where I live that I could spend a day just watching a green Katie did make its way across a branch. Mm. That's a Sabbath thing.
1: Mm. Barbara, I have to say I enjoyed your sublime collection of sermons, Always a Guest, Speaking of Faith Far From Home. Most preachers preach week after week to the same people so they know them, but somehow you manage to connect your messages with audiences you don't really know, including our day one listeners. How do you do that?
0: I think three ways. I I have loved being a guest preacher, by the way. I know people with weekly congregations who feel sorry for guest preachers, but then they invite us to come (laughs) Mm -hmm. and say things they wouldn't say and give them a week off. So it's mutually (laughs) beneficial. Um, Three things. One is I I can't count on knowing what happened in that congregation the week before, though I usually research that. So i got to go pretty deep down into the human condition and Mm -hmm. just head for things that uh, I am convinced are common to to most people everywhere. Uh, i got to watch my own, you know, cultural set then when I make that assumption, but almost everybody wants to love and be loved and to belong. Uh, almost everybody's got a hurt place that they're trying to figure out how to deal with by hurting back. Um, almost everybody's got an issue with forgiveness, hmm. etc. So go there. Um, We have the text in common because I am a lectionary preacher, so I'm picking up a text they're familiar with. And I also am tuned in to the culture, not the social media culture, but to books that are on Mm -hmm. bestseller lists, to movies coming out. And all of those strike me as ways that I can connect with people I don't live a daily life with. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Well, your sermon today focuses on the Old Testament text for this Sunday from Isaiah chapter 45. Would you read it for us? Oh, I will. Thus
0: says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their robes, to open doors before him, and the gates shall not be closed. I will go before you and level the mountains. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches hidden in secret places, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I give you a title, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I arm you, though you do not know me, so that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make weal and create woe. I, the Lord, do all these things.
1: So, Barbara... You're going to tell us who Cyrus is and what he's up to here. But what struck you as you prepared your sermon on this strange person? Oh, what struck me is that he was um,
0: a Gentile. Mm. And Christians have made a zillion interpretations of what that's all about, opening the way you know, to Gentiles. But he was... Um, an historical figure. Part of what I loved is he's got a biblical story, but he's got stories that show up on cylinders that have been dug up about his deeds and his benevolence. And I kind of got a little mini crush on Cyrus the Great <laughs> when I uh, studied up on him some. So, but the but the turning point was was the righteous Gentile. And Jeffrey Salkin wrote a book on righteous Gentiles ages ago, and I ate it up. Mm. In Christian tradition, think of the Magi, you know, Mm -hmm. probably Zoroastrians who came into the Christian story and left again. They don't even know they're in our Christmas pageants because we baptized (laughs) them and kept them. But it got so fun to look through Scripture for people outside the tradition who are chosen by God to bring blessings into a tradition, not their own. So there
1: was Cyrus,
0: really one of the forerunners of that. Mm. And I snapped him up.
1: Well, we look forward to hearing your message about this. It's called Belonging to the God Who Doesn't Belong to Us. Barbara, thanks for sharing it with us.
0: Thanks for asking me back.
1: And if you'd like to listen again to today's program with Barbara Brown-Taylor with an extended interview, you can subscribe to Day One Weekly Program on your favorite podcast app, or you can stream or download it on our website at dayone.org. And if you'd like a free printed sermon transcript, just call us at 404-815-9110.
0: Admit it, this is an odd thing to be doing on a weekend morning in the 21st century, gathering around a text as old as the Parthenon to see what it has to teach us about our relationship with the divine all these years later. Apparently, fewer and fewer people are spending their Sunday mornings like this, and even those who do are usually content with skimming a cup of meaning off the top, a takeaway that will help them be better parents or people or friends, Along with a reminder that God loves them no matter what. If it works, it doesn't need fixing. The problem is that most of our problems aren't easy fixes, just like most Bible passages aren't as simple as, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Some are as dense as, Where the corpse is, there the eagles will gather, or, For those who have will receive more, and they will have more than enough. But as for those who don't have, Even the little they have will be taken away from them. When Peter Wallace invited me to be here today, I took one look at the assigned readings and I slapped my hand on Isaiah 45. I've loved it forever. Not because it's easy, but because it's hard. With its war language, its treasures of darkness, its clear assertion that God has no wicked rival lurking in the shadows. There's just one God out there who forms light and creates darkness, who makes weal, and creates woe. If you want to hold someone responsible for either one, look no further. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There are other views of God in the Bible. It's a whole library of books, after all. And this one has roots in a certain time and place, just like all the others do. It has riches hidden in secret places, which it can't reveal to 21st century people in a hurry. It needs more time than that, time like this, for lingering at the well a while, dropping a bucket instead of a cup to discover what's deeper down than our own reflections on the surface of a text that still has life in it after 2,500 years. The first line is key. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus. Once you find out who Cyrus was and what God chose him to do, the rest rolls out from there. Isaiah 45 marked a sea change in our ancestors' understanding of who God was and how God worked. That God was their God, but not only their God. That God worked through them, but not only through them without voiding a single clause of the covenant that bound them to God forever, God chose Cyrus to remind our forebears that the God they belonged to did not belong to them, though God would move heaven and earth to care for them, come weal or come woe. There's still plenty of life left in that. If you remember a psalm that begins by the rivers of Babylon, or a song from Godspell that starts there too, then you already know the time and place of Isaiah's prophecy. Tens of thousands of exiles from Jerusalem were camped by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers with their harps hung in the willows. Their captors wanted songs from them, but they couldn't sing. They'd lost everything that had made them who they were. Their land, their homes, their kingdom, their king— the temple they'd built to the God who protected them. You and I both know people who are already having panic attacks over losing the next election. This was much bigger than that. The exiles were deeply into the woe part. The prophets said it was because they had failed to serve God's purpose for them. Set apart to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, They'd failed to bless anything but their own self-interest. So when Babylon's fist came down on them, it came down hard, and God did nothing to stop it. Foreign soldiers looted Solomon's 400-year-old temple like it was a convenience store, and when they'd emptied Jerusalem of everything they wanted, they burned it to the ground. Then they rounded up the city's elites before they could buy their ways out and added them to the long, long line of captives, headed to exile in Babylon, more than 1,600 miles away. And that was the end of the kingdom of Judah. Depending on whose math you follow, the exile lasted at least 48 years, maybe as long as 70. In either case, long enough for someone who remembered the smell of rain in the streets of Jerusalem to die of old age, and children of their children to be born who had no memories of home at all. I don't know how Isaiah's prophecy landed in their midst, the one that began with, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, except that it was around the time it all started coming true. In the fall of 539 BCE, a Persian king named Cyrus advanced on the capital city of Babylon. Since he'd already put together the other pieces of a new world empire, his reputation preceded him. Cyrus was known as a benevolent ruler who let conquered people keep their own traditions and gave them back the images of their gods that had been seized in battle. So when he and his soldiers closed in on the capital, the Babylonians who were fed up with their own king swung open the gates and welcomed the Persians in. According to Isaiah, God recognized Cyrus too. This was someone God could work with. This was someone who could free the captives and send them home at last. So God called Cyrus by his name and anointed him, though never in the history of Israel had God done such a thing. Anointed was and is a big word in Hebrew, Mashiach, translated as Messiah and just as big in Greek, where it's translated as Christos or Christ. Take either term down to its roots, and you get someone anointed by God for a salvific purpose, to deliver people from wherever they would have been headed if God had not chosen such a person to step in. In the First Testament of the Bible, kings, priests, and prophets were messiahs in this sense. In the Second Testament, Jesus was the only one. Maybe that's because Messiah had become capitalized by then. Salvation had come to mean something very specific, and that something could only be accessed through one Christ. By any measure, all of these Messiahs were Jewish. But Cyrus? What's a Gentile doing on the list of God's anointed? He was not a partner in God's covenant with Israel. He'd never heard of Abraham, never been to Jerusalem, couldn't speak Hebrew, much less read what Isaiah said about him. Since Cyrus was Persian, he might have been Zoroastrian. He might have worshipped Ahura Mazda or Marduk. He might have been a polytheist. He might have been spiritual but not religious. What's interesting is that this didn't seem to interest God. Any more than Cyrus's nationality, parentage or profession did. God was, in fact, very clear that Cyrus didn't even know who was talking to him. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen God said, I call you by your name. I give you a title, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I arm you, though you do not know me so that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So that's what else this passage is about. Not just God's readiness to grasp the right hand of a Gentile Messiah, but also God's readiness to be known as the God of all people, able to partner with anyone willing to embrace God's cause. If you're familiar with the term supersession, this is not that. I'm not talking about God breaking the covenant with Israel in order to set up a new one with the church. God doesn't break God's word. Instead, I'm recognizing what Judaism has recognized for thousands of years, namely that no one religion has a monopoly on God. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs famously said, that's what makes Judaism unique. It's teaching that wisdom, righteousness, and the possibility of a true relationship with God, Sachs wrote, are all available in non-Jewish cultures and religions as an ongoing heritage from the covenant that God made with Noah and all his descendants. So the tradition teaches that one does not need to be Jewish to know God or truth, or to attain salvation. That's huge. You don't have to be Jewish to be saved, or to be a Savior. After Cyrus the Great became the new ruler of Babylon, he freed the captives to go home and start rebuilding Jerusalem. He did what he had been anointed to do, becoming what is known in Jewish teaching to this day as a righteous Gentile someone who entered into redemptive relationship with Jews, though he was not a Jew, who looked beyond the self-interest of his own people to serve a higher purpose for another people, both learning God's name in the process and making it known to all who learned Cyrus's story. If you Google righteous Gentiles today, you'll be led straight to the website of Yad Vashem the World Holocaust Remembrance Center in Jerusalem, which keeps track of the Righteous of the Nations in its database. There are more than 28,000 names on the list now from 51 countries, righteous Gentiles, who protected their Jewish neighbors at great risk during the Second World War. Oscar Schindler's name jumps out thanks to Steven Spielberg's movie about him. He was a member of the Nazi Party, so he was no paragon of virtue, but that was not a requirement. What mattered was that when Schindler saw a way to prevent more than a thousand Jewish workers in his factories from being sent to concentration camps, he did it. But not everyone on the list Yad Vashem keeps is famous. Feng Shan Ho was the Chinese consul general in Vienna. In 1938 when Austria was annexed to Nazi Germany and Jews needed to show visas or boat tickets to other countries to leave. Ho issued hundreds of visas to Shanghai for anyone who asked for them over the direct orders of the Chinese ambassador to Berlin. Adolf and Maria Althoff ran a circus that traveled all over Europe during the war which made it possible for them to shelter an illegal family of four for years without getting caught. When Gestapo officers showed up for routine inspections, the whole circus, over 90 artists and their families, kept the secret. Vessel and Fatima Vesseli were Albanian Muslims who took one Jewish family into their small home in the mountains, then another, five adults and two children, who stayed with them until the end of the war in 1944. Afterwards, their son Refik went to live with one of the families in Yugoslavia until they were able to immigrate to Israel. None of these people set out to be righteous Gentiles. Most of them didn't plan to be saviors at all. They were just ordinary people, more like you and me than Cyrus who lived in a world of deep division and serious danger with about 20 minutes to think when someone they barely knew needed help they knew they could give, though it would require them to step over a deadly red line. Some surely decided on the basis of their religion or their politics, but that clearly could go either way. So there was something else at work that made them do the right thing when they could, for as long as they could, though there was great, great risk in it for everyone involved. What I love is that Yad Vashem is keeping a list of them, a list of people not like us who have helped people like us. I wish every religion, I wish the Freedom From Religion Foundation kept a list like that, along with every political party a list of people who have entered into redemptive relationship with each other, though they don't read the same books, believe the same things, follow the same teachings, or look up to the same teachers. You know what happens? We're all saved in big and little ways by people we don't agree with. It's hard to check everyone's credentials before you decide whether to let them fix your flat on the freeway. find a wheelchair for your mother at the airport, or bring you a pot of soup when your dog dies, or help you look for your phone in the grocery store where you're pretty sure you left it. It's also nice that no one stops to check your boxes before they dive into the water to pull you out, or whack you on the back when they see you choking on a chicken nugget at a wedding reception, or just sit with you while you both wait for the cops to come, though the accident Was all your fault. It happens. We just don't talk about it much. The people who cross the aisle to help us and how they don't seem like the enemy to us. Because when we're with our own crowd, that can come across as, I don't know, traitorous, unprincipled, weak, soft in the head. You know what they're like when you're not around, right? Are you changing sides? Talk like that is what turns us all into exiles from each other. And there's a lot of it going on right now. The best part of the Cyrus story is how it opens the possibility that God's not as discriminating as we are. Or at least not about the same things. Religion, nationality, gender, education, profession, social class, political party. Meh. When God looks around for partners, something else tops the list. Whatever it is that makes people likely to do the right thing in difficult circumstances, to make things better instead of worse in our own times and places, with our own coordinates and skill sets. That's what makes us anointable. And there's no algorithm for getting there. There's just the readiness, the desire, and a tank full of courage which you might also call, I don't know, freedom from prudent restraint. I hope that gives you something to think about later, after you've done something more culturally appropriate with the rest of your day off. Then, when it's time to open the treasures of darkness later tonight, I hope you at least fool around with this sentence, inserting your name in the right spot. Thus says the Lord to his anointed Your name goes here, whose right hand I have grasped. God knows what could happen if you believed that.
1: Our preacher today was the Reverend Barbara Brown Taylor, an Episcopal priest, best selling author, and popular speaker based in Northeast Georgia. For a free transcript of her sermon, Belonging to the God Who Doesn't Belong to Us, call us at 404-815-9110. That's 404-815-9110. Or write to us at Day One, 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. Please keep in mind that Day One depends on the financial gifts of faithful listeners like you. We're grateful for your help. And remember to visit us online at day1.org. This is Peter Wallace. Next time on Day One, we're honored to have with us the Rev. Dr. Victor Aloyo, Jr., President of Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. His powerful sermon is titled, Love, an Imperative of Hope. Be sure to join us next week on Day One. Our day one preacher, Barbara Brown Taylor, shares some final reflections on her sermon today, Belonging to the God Who Doesn't Belong to Us. And Barbara, thank you for giving us so much to ponder about this text from Isaiah 45. God chose Cyrus, you said, to remind our forebears that the God they belonged to did not belong to them, though God would move heaven and earth to care for them, come weal or come woe. At this point, the exiles were deeply into the woe part, you said, but what does this tell us about the relationship we have with the God we love and serve today, this moving heaven and earth to care for us
0: if i'm completely honest with you, that's a benevolent gloss because what was <laughs> happening to the people of Israel did not look like moving heaven and earth exactly. you know to help them. In fact, the woe came from God, and according to the other prophets, because they'd been. Disobedient hadn't hadn't lived up to their own anointing and the purpose that they'd been chosen for, so I do have to say that honestly. I just passed a sign somewhere that says "God is a friend," and I thought, "Have you read some of the books in the first testament?" It doesn't <laughs> sound friendly at all, you know, but it uh, points to a what a larger view of what's good for us, mm-hmm. I suppose. Now, ask me your question again. Well,
1: what does this tell us about our relationship with God?
0: Oh, what it tells me. That's all I can do is tell you. <laughs> it just tells me to really watch the ways I read myself into my ideas of God. Uh-huh. And not just me, but my family, my culture, my, you know, all the ways in which I make God up. Mm. And and if anything, my spiritual disciplines, including diving into a text like this, are ways in which I try to fight the impulse mm. to make God in my own image, which I think is a human thing to do. But it's um it's it's futile and damaging, not just to God, but mm. to me and everybody I come in contact with, if I assume God votes with me on most things. <laughs>
1: Cyrus was a righteous Gentile, you said, whose actions enabled God's people to return home. And you shared some incredible vignettes of ordinary people who lived in a time of deep division and serious danger, yet who stepped up to help Jewish people during the Holocaust. People, you said, who entered into a redemptive relationship with each other, though they didn't believe the same things or read the same books. People who were available to offer help regardless of checking political party or church membership, God anointed them, as God did Cyrus, for a particular work. And we're anointable, too, though there's no algorithm you said for getting there. We just need the desire and a tank full of courage. Are there ways to create the readiness, the desire, that courage in our own hearts?
0: That's a huge question, so I'm going to go back to what I did in the sermon and let everybody listening know that you can go to the Yad Vashem website and see not only a list of the 28,000 names, of the righteous Gentiles who helped Jews during World War II. But they've got a section of stories, Mm. pop-up stories, Mm. and those are amazing. And just reading those changed me. Mm. So I think there's something about that kind of peer pressure. When you just look at the inventive ways that people thought of to help each other, though— Another thing I said in the sermon is some of them only had 20 minutes to think about it before they said, yes, come in quickly, hide, hide right now. You know, a huge risk. So on the Yad Vashem site, they mentioned people studying These 28,000? What made them do what they did? Because we also know ordinary people joined the Nazis Mm -hmm. in shooting people in the head and dumping them into troughs. So ordinary people showed up on both sides. And that is so interesting. Couldn't find the word. Is it humanity? Is it empathy? There was a little bit on the site about how marginalized people had a keener sense of what it is to be the ones being persecuted. Mm. And so even if they were marginal in a different way than their religion, they were more likely to step in. But I take that question away from the sermon. I hope every sermon isn't finished. I hope listeners finish it. So what is that about? But I took my immediate inspiration from the people I read about.
1: Barbara, your sermon made me think of a little family-owned and operated restaurant that we have loved eating at for years. It's the chef, his wife, who serves tables, and a son who manages it. And we've always enjoyed visiting with them. They come out and talk with us. The food is amazing. Sweet people. But the last time we were there when we left, I saw a sign on the window outside I hadn't noticed before. It It had a political slogan that I had a visceral reaction to, and I thought, well, I'll never eat there again. But maybe I need to rethink that. Could they be a Cyrus to me? What do you think? What do you think, Peter?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I live in a place it's impossible to silo. Uh, Mine is very tiny (laughs) compared Mm -hmm. to my neighbors. And I've lived there for 30 years, and that's long enough to realize you can't tell much about people's wholeness from the signs they put In their business windows or their yards, although I've learned to accept those as some kind of, what, retaliation for ways they've felt punched Mm. by my worldview, by my way of seeing things. So that's me at my most pastoral. You know, and beyond that, in every other situation I can think of, I go ahead and register my offense and realize something precious to me has just been stomped. And then try not to pay back. I mean— I'm really working on my um, ability to resist payback and just not not play by the rules. Mm. But I I do know um, people who have got a lot more going on in their lives than their presidential
1: candidates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Barbara. What's one thing from your sermon today that you hope our listeners will carry with them in the days ahead?
0: to play with that last line which i debated about putting in there but i mean it's it's a big deal to compare yourself to cyrus or anointed kings you know priests and prophets of israel but i don't think it hurts at all to assume that we've got purpose we're here for reasons and those reasons are not in an envelope waiting for us to open them we create the reasons we we create them we create our purposes and if anything, in my world, they're often presented as too big, too big Mm. for me. And a lot of the small purposes get lost, which is why I filled a paragraph with, somebody did whack me on the back because I was choking on a chicken nugget at a wedding reception. So I don't know who she was, (laughs) but just the ways in which, uh, they're just little ways you can step in and give somebody their breath
1: back. So why wouldn't we do that? Barbara Brown Taylor, thank you for being with us. Mm. Thank you, Peter. Day One is the voice of America's
0: mainline Protestant churches. Visit us online at dayone.org. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sherry Miller wishing you all God's blessings on Day One and forever.